Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week. And we have a fabulous show for you tonight. Joining me is the director of the Center for Indigenous Training, Wesley Ed, to give his take on the failed voice referendum, Founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund, Adam Belos, to discuss the disinformation campaign put out by Hamas in the wake of a hospital blast in Gaza. And I'll also be joined by independent photojournalist and rebel news contributor, Rukshan Fernando, who will talk us through the eerie similarity between pro-Palestinian and pro-voice activist rhetoric. But first... Praise be to the gods of common sense for Australia voted no to the dangerous, racist, indigenous voice to parliament. And it wasn't just any old no. Far from the double majority needed to win a referendum, not only did it lose the national vote about 61% to 39%, not a single state voted yes. Even the reputationally progressive states of Victoria and New South Wales voted no by about 55 and 59% respectively. In fact, the only jurisdiction that voted yes was the Australian Capital Territory, that land of politicians and public servants who just love any chance to expand the power of bureaucracy and the elites. As to who else voted yes, well, it came as no surprise the metropolitan lefty lovies in our capital cities did so, with the exception of Adelaide. In fact, the state of South Australia offered up arguably the most emphatic no of the night, with not a single electorate recording a majority yes vote. As for who voted no, well, you only had to step into the suburbs and beyond to find the majority of Australians had given the voice the flick, unconvinced as they were, by the subpar campaigning from Yes 23. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was disappointed to say the least, but was able to semi-acknowledge the government's shortcomings. We argued for this change not out of convenience, but from conviction because that's what people deserve from their government. And of course, when you do the hard things, when you aim high, sometimes you fall short. And tonight, we acknowledge, understand and respect that we have. Reactions from other yes advocates, both in the campaign and the media, were not quite as manicured. The general tenor of the clamour was that they'd done nothing wrong. It was instead the no campaign at fault for spreading lies and misinformation that fooled the public. Federal Greens leader Adam Bant demonstrated this attitude rather well. What's clear from the campaign, though, is that Peter Dutton is the master of misinformation. Peter Dutton's Liberals led a campaign of misinformation. Peter Dutton ran a Trumpian campaign of misinformation and fear that has the potential to set back reconciliation in this country unless we address it. 
Adam Bant wasn't the only crumpled yes campaigner who, for some reason, made a bizarre reference to Donald Trump. Voice architect Professor Marcia Langton did the same during an interview on The Point in response to criticism from no campaign leader Warren Mundine that she had racially vilified Australians. You know, this is a, uh, a very Trumpian play. This is uh, Steve Bannon, the Steve Bannon playbook. Uh, create race, racial division and, uh, by, by lying and, and then accuse me of being uh, uh, a provocateur. Now, why anyone would use a reference to a play being Trumpian or associated with Trump, in the case of his former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon, as an insult, is quite baffling. Donald Trump has been lied about every which way until sundown and has been indicted 91 times on bogus charges and he still manages to be as popular as ever with the Republican Party. If anything, the Yes campaign should have taken a leaf out of the Trumpian playbook. And as for Marcia Langton accusing Warren Mundine of creating racial division by lying, well, she should really take a look at her own behaviour in recent weeks, to which Warren Mundine was referring before she makes that kind of statement. Every time the no case raises one of their arguments, if you start pulling it apart, you get down to base racism. I'm sorry to say it, but that's where it lands. Or just sheer stupidity. Then there was the reaction of the lefty media class, who seemed quietly saddened that the little people just couldn't get their heads around voting for The Voice. This attitude was epitomised by host of Channel 10's The Project, Waleed Ali. The biggest dividing line seems to be education. So if you are in a seat that had high levels of tertiary education, a bachelor or postgrad, then you were, you were at the very top end of the yes vote. And if you had the lowest levels of tertiary education, you were at the, the low end of the yes vote. And that's not to say people who are educated know what they're doing and people who don't have tertiary education don't. It's about the style of the, the message, I think. And the concept of a voice is... <laughs> I can totally see why you would propose it. If you go through the history, you go through the experience of the people who designed it or who came up with the idea, it actually makes perfect sense. But most people haven't been on that journey. Yeah. And when you come to them with this idea that's actually quite abstract and complicated, they're going to respond with an instinct. And that instinct is, it just doesn't feel And then right. it doesn't help us. Now, the reason there is a correlation between having gone to university and voting yes is not because of intelligence. Some of the stupidest people I've ever met are university graduates. It's because of the cultural framework in which universities educate people. That is, we all know university campuses are flamingly left-wing and have been so for decades. If you've gone to university, you are going to have spent more time in a highly concentrated, woke, left-leaning environment than someone who hasn't. It's a scarce few of us who make it out of university unscathed by the cultural Marxism permeating every corridor. And while sure there were people on the right who voted yes, the concept of the voice is steeped in identity politics and the ideology of decolonization, both of which are very left wing. 
And you only need to look at the fact that according to the polls before the referendum, about 70% of Greens voters intended to vote yes, as opposed to upwards of 80% of coalition voters who intended to vote no. It's political orientation, not education or indeed intelligence, that maketh the university educated lean left. But it was the reaction of voice architect Thomas Mayo that revealed why Australia was really, really lucky to have dodged this bullet. Uh, I disagree that this was a bad idea uh, because I know that we needed that foundational change, you know, to be recognised uh, and to have a guaranteed representative body. Not politicians that uh, purport to speak for us, uh, like the one that we've just heard. Uh, not having political parties choose Indigenous people for us, but having us choose our, our, our leaders ourselves. We got that right. Um, Indigenous people, Indigenous leaders, uh, uh, one thing we do know is that we're never going to give up fighting for our rights, our rightful place in this country. So... It seems, at least from my reading, that Thomas Mayo believes Indigenous people are a special class of people who should not be subject to the democratic process all other Australians are subject to when choosing our leaders. Instead, Mayo seems to think Indigenous people should be exempt from Australian democracy and elect their own leaders based on race, not political party. Now, call me crazy. But that sounds like racial privilege, doesn't it? Conferring special extra rights on one group of people because they are of a certain race? Perhaps that's what was meant in the extra 25 pages of the Uluru Statement from the Heart when it spoke of recognising the ancient jurisdictions of First Nations law. Certainly, Thomas Mayo didn't seem too concerned about Australian common law or democracy when he made this comment on referendum night before the no result came in. And it doesn't matter what happens tonight, if it is a no answer, then we're not lying down, we're not taking no for an answer, and we will continue. Make no mistake. This whole thing was a power grab, initiated by resentful race agitators with an axe to grind under the guise of seeking to help Indigenous people who face appalling disadvantage. And I am thanking my lucky stars that Australians by and large had the good sense to see through the emotional blackmail and vote no. Joining me to discuss all of that and more is the director of the Centre for Indigenous Training, Wesley Ed. Wesley Ed, it is fantastic to see you again. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Daisy. Marvellous. Great to have you. Now, Wesley, it was a massive weekend and it has certainly been an interesting week. Lots yeah. going on. What are your initial thoughts in the wake of the referendum? Daisy, I'm, I've been watching the polls. I was even watching the, the betting market. <laughs> I, wasn't I wasn't surprised when we got the result that we got. I, I was a little bit surprised at the speed that um, our favourite cephologist, Anthony Green, announced the results. But again, because there's no uh, preferences to deal, it's to deal with. It's it's a pretty quick result, and I think what was great was that we knew as a country on the night where we stood. Mm. But 
What surprised me was how quickly it turned into something else. It was almost like we started the morning dealing with a um, a bill to alter the constitution, but by the end of the night, we were having a bit of a national existential crisis. <laughs> it was it was a, a little bit like that, and I, I agree with you um, on on the pace of the result. I think it was probably a, a good thing, don't you, that there was such an emphatic yeah. result um, one way. Look, I think it was important to understand how all Australians and all states and one territory um, feel about it. I think it's okay to unpick, you know, electorate by electorate, but the important result was that it was, you know, as you say, we know without a doubt how Australians feel about, you know, treaty, um, voice treaty and truth-telling. Yeah, it was pretty, it was universal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to know how Australians feel, certainly. And what what I noticed, and I mentioned this in my editorial, um, the voice campaigners are very much saying, oh, it's not our fault. We did nothing wrong. The reason the referendum down was because of mis- and disinformation from the no campaign. Uh, That's not a good look from them, is it? Daisy, to me, it's almost as if you haven't, if, if your proposal can't convince the nation on its own merits, and if you um, go emotional or emotional blackmail or something else, or you try to bring other things in that aren't actually a part of the proposal, or conversely, you try to ignore things that are in the proposal, then clearly I think you've got a problem. Um, Look, I don't think for a minute that Australian voters are racist or stupid. Mm. I actually think they saw the Uluru Statement from the heart for what it is, and I think that everybody voted accordingly. And I've got good friends that have told me yes, no, and informal was how they they voted on the day. Oh, wow. But that's how they felt about it, and I totally respect however anyone voted. And... You know, it's interesting, Wesley. I, I actually spent uh, referendum day in Maryborough. I, I was at a, a family yeah. function up there, which was lovely. And, you know, as you'd imagine, Maryborough, Queensland, is the heartland of no territory. I mean, Maryborough is in the electorate of Wide Bay, which I think voted about yeah. 75% no, massive no territory. Inevitably, the yeah. referendum came up in discussion. The response I got yeah. from everyone I spoke to was, Look, we sympathise with Indigenous people, we really do, but there simply wasn't enough information for us to vote yes. What's it going to take for Anthony Albanese to face up to that mistake of not providing the public with enough information? Um, Daisy, I'm not even sure that he wanted to. Mm. Um, I think he was trying to win the politics of the day rather than overcome Indigenous disadvantage. I, I, I don't think his motivation was to put forward a compelling technical case. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the, ho- the intent was always to shift blame on the opposition and on the no campaign and on, and on anything else. But, I mean, I, I, I think part of the misinformation that the no campaign has been accused of with, was actually direct quotes from some members of the referendum working group. Mm. You know, we've got um, a bunch of referendum working group members on video saying that 
that we needed a voice to set up a sovereign body in order to negotiate treaties with 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 some resolution to the power indifference mm. or the power imbalance. So I'm not quite sure. I you know, and I, I don't quite know that it's right to say that it was all the no campaign, um, putting out the misinformation. And remember, the no campaign was outspent. I don't know. 10 to 1 or something. I mean, you know, the fundraising for the yes was truly extraordinary. Mm. And on top of that, you had the full machinery of government backing the yes campaign. So, you know, it's it's very difficult to, to um, I, don't, I don't know about, about you, Daisy, but it's almost like a dancer being dreadful <laughs> and blaming the floor. You know, I can't, oh, <laughs> What a, you know, I couldn't possibly dance on that floor. Oh, no, it could be because there's some, you know, it's you. Mm. So, look, I, I, I think it is time for a few people to to reflect on um, how much they spent, how it went, and, and if it didn't go well, <laughs> do you think, you know, your actions might have something to do with it? <laughs> Look, Wesley, I, I have to say I agree with you. And as a as a d- dancer myself, grew up dancing. I love the analogy of of the dancer blaming the floor. That rings very, very true for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what if it was a football team that came second? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. They'd, maybe they'd blame their shoes. They might blame their shoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. look, Wesley. Unlike places um, such as the USA, race is not a major factor in Australian political culture, a fact that I'm very thankful for. While the campaign for The Voice certainly featured a lot of genuinely well-meaning people, it really did, much of that campaign was powered by ideological activists who I think wish to make race a bigger part of Australian political culture. Do you think that resounding no vote indicates Australians are just not interested in that kind of racial politics? Look, I think so. Daisy, to me, it would have been okay for a person to vote no coming from a place of unity Mm. and, you know, you could vote no and say I'm not going to let 3% of the country be carved out of our, you know, national discourse and go away and be separate. I don't don't think that's racist. I I think that's that's unifying, oddly enough. Um, The other thing is that the no campaign had it on their T-shirts, on their core flutes, on their material, you know, vote no to the voice of division. Um, And I think that the Yes campaign was trying very, very hard to separate a group of people, um, you know, by their heritage, their race, their genealogy, their their something else, and I don't know what. And one of the problems we have in Australia, and I don't think, I don't even know who confronted this in the lead-up to the referendum, if you want to divide the country, someone's going to have to write a list. (laughs) Someone is going to have to say, um, you know, you're over here, you're over here, you get one vote, you get two votes. And where do you draw the line? Mm. Um, You know, we we, we have this ongoing national debate around people that um, may see themselves as part of the Aboriginal race or the Torres Strait Islander race and we can't prove it or they can't prove it, um, it's contentious. Mm. So so I think our way of avoiding the list is to say we are all Australian and voting no is not racist. 
Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad. I'm very glad that we avoided having to go through the heartache of, of actually dividing the country according to some hitherto unknown ca- uh, cr- criteria. Oh, yeah, just uh, just imagine. I think we've really dodged such a bullet with this thing. Now, we have to talk about referendum night, namely your referendum night. I was in the heart of no territory. You were in the heart of yes tor- territory <laughs> in the fact that you were on the desk at the ABC during their referendum night yeah. coverage. You were excellent, by the way. Um, and as we Thank know, you. no, you really were. As we know, the ABC is very pro-voice. They pretend they're impartial, but they're not. I have to ask, what was it like sitting there on the ABC desk while the no vote was coming in? Very interesting <laughs> because I, well, I wasn't surprised. As I said before, I wasn't surprised. Um, what I was surprised about is that the results came in so quickly and we've talked about that. But then also people were having to, on camera, um, come up with their own emotional or political or philosophical response to what was happening. And I think some of my panellists perhaps would have preferred to have been sitting quietly in a room somewhere, you know, being upset or being disappointed or or consoling their friends. Um, yeah, it, it was. I think it was pretty confronting. And, Daisy, I, I don't take any pleasure in, in, in the no case winning because I think, you know, like I would like to think that everyone on the yes side are, are good, proud Australians. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it would have hurt them. And, and I, as I say, I don't take any pleasure in that. Mm. And that's my feeling as well. I mean, I, I've been quite scathing in my editorial of, of certain activists within the Yes campaign. But as I, as, I, as I mentioned, that campaign was also full of people who really did mean well and who really wanted the best for yeah. Indigenous Australians and who would be genuinely upset at this referendum result. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. It was, a, it was a strange feeling. Like, it wasn't like, you know, when your favourite yeah. political party wins, I think, OK, well, this is the result we want, but... We need to be a little bit a little bit sensitive here to people who really did mean well. Um, but there's been it, it, it was certainly it was certainly not the night for you know balloons and mm. champagne and and all of that. I think it was a I, you know I, I think the evening it, it was appropriate for the evening to be you know a bit subdued, a bit sombre yeah. on both sides. Yeah, I, I, I would agree and um, I, I was very, I remember reflecting on it thinking what an interesting feeling when, you, when you've won but it was yeah. very fascinating. Um, now there's been, yeah. interestingly enough, a, a flow and effect already from the referendum yeah. result in, in yours and my uh, joint home state of Queensland which is that um, David Christofulli, the opposition leader um, has uh, of, Queens, of the Queensland, has pulled away from his commitment to negotiating a state treaty and a heartbeat after, so did Anastasia Palaszczuk. She pulled out as well saying, oh, she just couldn't do it if they didn't have uh, bipartisan support. Um, What an interesting development. What's your reaction to that? Well, Queensland, of of all the jurisdictions, you know, we we got the high score Mm -hmm. in terms of no. (laughs) The other... But the other interesting thing is that for each of the jurisdictions that are floating the idea of a treaty, they have mostly been developed in, Daisy, I can say this, but I don't want you to, Mm. they've been developed in a black bubble. (laughs) And 
they've been they've been put forward and it is coming from the indigenous people but if you want to have a treaty there's the other in Queensland 96% mm. of the state that have you know they have a they they are I hope they have a very strong view one way or another of, of how that might look. Mm. But what we learned last Saturday was that were it to go to the other 96% of Queensland, I think the message would come through loud and clear that uh, no, we're not, we, you know, we don't want to carve off part of our administration and we don't want to carve off part of our population mm. either. Exactly. Um, you know, hopefully we're all proud Queenslanders. So, mm. look, I, I I think each state and the Northern Territory and any I, I'm not sure about the ACT, but the other jurisdictions, I think, will have to go through some soul searching mm, I think and so too. look at their their Saturday results and go. We know the Indigenous people want it, but, but what, what about, about the rest of us? Everyone else, exactly. And and we're all we're all Australians and, at the end of the day. Um, Absolutely. Mm. And, Daisy, the other really interesting thing here is, okay, what are you doing today, right now, to help Indigenous people that are doing it tough? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think all of this talk about treaty and Anastasia Palaszczuk said it herself, you know, oh, treaties, years away. Well, okay. How <laughs> okay. Do, how do we... <laughs> what are you doing now? What are you now? doing right now for those in need? Absolutely. Yeah. We, 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 we can't drop that ball. No, yeah. I, f I fully agree. If I actually agree with Albert when he said the one good thing that's come out of this is that there has now been a laser-sharp focus on Indigenous disadvantage and yeah. how we all want to rectify it. Wesley, Ed, you're wonderful as always. Thank you so much for coming on the program this evening. No, pleasure to chat. Thanks, Daisy. Thank you. Now to the unfolding war in the Middle East after the brutal Islamic terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel, which saw innocent Jewish men, women and children butchered and killed in their homes, with upwards of 1,400 Israelis now dead. On Tuesday night, there was an explosion at a hospital on the Gaza Strip, which Hamas health authorities claimed killed hundreds of Palestinian civilians. Hamas was quick to blame Israel, as were other Islamic nations. However, the, the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, denied that Israel was the perpetrator and instead accused the Hamas-aligned terror group Palestinian Islamic Jihad of launching the attack. The IDF claimed it was an errant rocket fired by Islamic Jihad that misfired mid-flight and hit the Gaza hospital instead of its intended target. And they have the footage to prove it, as reported by Jesse Waters of Fox News. The IDF has just released surveillance footage showing a rocket launched towards Israel, igniting mid-flight and then propelling directly down into Gaza. There that is right there. The surveillance camera timestamp also directly corresponds to the moment the hospital was struck. The IDF also reportedly have recorded a conversation among jihadists that links them to the misfire. In addition, Recently released photographs of the hospital appear to show that only the parking lot was really damaged, with minimal damage to the surrounding hospital buildings. This could mean the death toll might be considerably lower than what has been cited by Hamas. So is Hamas engaged in a war of disinformation as well as firepower? 
Joining me to discuss this is founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund, Adam Bellos. Adam, it is fantastic to have you here. I have to ask, is the surveillance footage released by the IDF proof that Hamas is engaged in a global disinformation campaign about the conflict? Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, uh, first and foremost. Um, I would definitely say that Hamas has been engaged in a disinformation campaign for at least since 2007. Um, if you look at every single conflict that has happened uh, between Israel and Hamas vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, over the Gaza Strip, there's always been some type of disinformation campaign. Um, this is the first time where they've been caught not only inflating numbers, but suggesting that Israel had done something that, that they did not. Um, it's part of their agenda. One of the things that's happening, and I'm sure you've seen this in many different interviews around the world, is that the Palestinian propaganda machine is beginning to fail, not only because of the, the butchery on October 7th, but also because uh, they're scrambling. And the this is the first time in, in very many years where the international media is actually siding with Israel over any type of Palestinian extremist group, if you've noticed. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fairly extraordinary, all of the coverage. And look, Hamas clearly doesn't care about Palestinians. I mean, they, they put their, their headquarters and rocket launches in hospitals and next to civilian bu buildings. Do you think that Hamas actually wants high numbers of Palestinian casualties so they can use them as propaganda against Israel? Um, as terrible as this sounds, I, I would say yes. If you look at the past conflicts of Gaza, they have always used human uh, babies and women as human shields. They've always worked to rack up the number of civilians that are lost on their side in order to make Israel look bad. This is something that has been a tactic of nearly every single radical Islamist, Islamic group uh, since the start of radical Islam expressing itself in violence. Um, as you can see from the butchery uh, on October 7th. And I mean, if you look at the way that ISIS behaved, if you look at the way the Taliban in Afghanistan behaved, using human shields is, uh, is an easy way to make the enemy look bad if the international community doesn't understand the context of what's going on. And I think what is unfolding right now internationally is that the world is starting to understand the context in which we were arguing why Hamas was bad, if that makes sense. And with this situation with the hospital, it's, it's only allowed people to really understand what we've been trying to explain to people about these radical Islamists for many years. And that is that they do not appreciate human life or sanctify human life the way the Israeli army and the Jewish people and the state of Israel always has and has always tried to conduct themselves, if that makes any sense. I mean, that makes total sense, actually, that the ideology behind it all is so brutal. And it's what I spoke about, actually, last week um, with Israeli politician Sharon Haskell um, about how this is not just a turf war. The radical Islamist ideology <laughs> of Hamas would see Israel and the Jewish people exterminated. So do you think it's that holy war mentality that drives Hamas to justify sacrificing innocent Palestinians as well as Israelis? So, so one of the things that I've actually been talking about on a lot of the segments I've been doing is that this looks like the final attempt of radical Islamists to try to start this holy war. 
And one of the thing that's one of the things that's very important about understand understanding an eschatological apocalyptic imagination, so to speak, or, or like a group of people who are set about bringing the apocalypse in the way that they interpret it, is that there is no reason not to sacrifice anybody in order for this religious eschatological goal, if that makes sense, or apocalyptic goal. So I, I do believe the ideology of the radical Islam that is perpetuating and fueling the Hamas group. And also, if you read the Hamas charter, it's very easy to understand because it's laid out in plain, plain words. Um, I, I do agree with her that this is much, much more than just a turf war. Uh, I, I would say that uh, given that the majority of the fronts that we're fighting are proxies of Iran, that this is that ideological war that nearly uh, had been destroyed because of ISIS and because of the birth of the Abraham Accords, which was becoming somewhat of a like a, a new type of NATO for the Middle East. So uh, you will see if this war does continue to spin out of control, the moderate Arab states will join Israel and the Western countries in some type of coalition. So uh, to answer your question in short, yes, it is much more than a turf war. I, I would agree with Sharon's assessment there. Mm, yes, it's it's really terrifying. And what, what I've noticed, actually, um, there is a massive double standard um, between how the Western left talks about Israel and also how they talk about Ukraine. I remember when Russia attacked Ukraine, the left was just screaming for Ukraine to retaliate and admonishing anyone who said they shouldn't as, as somehow, you know, anti-democracy. But when Hamas attacks Israel, we've heard calls for a ceasefire. We've heard calls for de-escalation. What is so different about Israel that it's not allowed to defend itself? Uh, the difference is, is that it's a Jewish state. Mm. And the majority of the left is completely against the sovereignty uh, or the independence or the self-determination of the Jewish people around the world. They reject our peoplehood. Um, thus, they reject the legitimacy of us having an army and us uh, defending ourselves. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that this is the only country that is never allowed to actually win a war or finish a war. Uh, since 1948, uh, other than the peace with Egypt and the peace with Jordan, uh, I, I believe the peace with Egypt was in 81 or 82, um, the peace with Jordan was in 1993, uh, signed simultaneously with the uh, Oslo Accords, we've never been able to have a diplomatic resolution to any of our military conflict. Um, in the last 75 years, other than the new peace treaties. So you, you can't expect us not to get into more conflict if there's no diplomatic resolution after some type of military exchange uh, or some type of combat exchange. I, I do think that uh, a very large core of the constant international clamoring for a ceasefire, and, and I noticed it as well, like they were constantly calling the Israeli response to October 7th, like out of proportion. Hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, the news of the, and then the news of the hospital came out where it, everybody took Hamas's word for what happened without even fact-checking anything on the ground. It was actually Al Jazeera that broke one of the videos that showed that Hamas was responsible or Palestinian, Palestinian Islamic Jihad was responsible for the destruction of this area and the loss of what they're saying is 500 people. So I think it comes down to a, uh, a systemic anti-Semitism mm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, that is global, that has existed for 2,500 years in various forms, uh, who disagree with the right of the Jewish people to defend themselves. It is. It has actually been really galling um, watching the commentary uh, on this. I just. Uh, this is going to sound very naive, but I just didn't realize there were that many people who who didn't like Jewish people. Um, is that a response you've had from a lot of people? A surprise? Well, one of one of the things that you were speaking about on the episode that Sharen joined you on was that there were. I think you were talking about in your monologue was the protests that are around the world and specifically that was outside of the opera house in oh, Sydney. Oh, yes. Mm. And, uh, right, and, and, and to be honest, um, as somebody who, who was witnessing that from abroad mm. um, and, and then seeing what was going on in the major capitals around the world, I was not surprised. Mm. Um, for the, Since the second Lebanon war, the boycott, divestment, sanction movement has exploded on college campuses, yeah. uh, mostly attracting uh, uh, descendants of the Middle East who, who are Muslim or Palestinian mm. um, or, or um, people who are immigrants to America or on visas or whatever, and the radical, like, revolutionary socialist left. Yes. Um, and I, I have been trying to explain to people for years how important it is to fight this, this faction and this this ideological nonsense, so to speak, which mm. is really just fueled by by modern Nazi propaganda or, or reworded Nazi propaganda about what Israel is and who the Jewish people are. Absolutely, uh, to me, I'm not surprised. To me, I'm not surprised by any of this at all. Mm. Um, it, it's very obvious that this has been an issue that has been uh, percolating around yeah. the world. Um, if you look, if you look at uh, what happened in 2021. Uh, in the conflict between Gaza and Israel, there were people driving through the streets of London oh my screaming, God. rape rape their daughters. Oh, that is so absolutely th appalling, I'm, Adam. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave it there. We will, we'll have to, please, we'll have to get you back on the show because this has been so enlightening. Um, it is tragic, the anti-Semitism. It's tragic what's going on there. God bless you. We'll, we'll all be praying for you. And I do hope to see you again soon. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I loved having been introduced to your program. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you, Adam. We will speak soon. Speaking of Hamas, we've seen far too many people in Western countries openly supporting their actions in Israel. This is the Free Palestine Movement, which purports to stand against supposed Israeli occupation and, to use a word Australians will have become very familiar with over the past 18 months, colonization. Anyone paying attention to the rhetoric of the indigenous elites who led the Yes campaign will likely have heard them mention colonization and possibly decolonization at some point. Now, decolonization is one of those left-wing buzzwords that gets thrown around so much it's lost a lot of its meaning. But this article from lefty online publication The Conversation sets it out pretty well. Colonization is more than physical. It is also cultural and psychological in, in determining whose knowledge is privileged. In this, Colonization not only impacts the first generation colonized, but creates enduring issues. Decolonization seeks to reverse and remedy this through direct action and listening to the voices of First Nations people, 
True decolonization seeks to challenge and change white superiority, nationalistic history, and quote-unquote truth. That is, decolonization supposedly changes culture and attitudes to make society more equitable for indigenous people. It's what Anthony Albanese and the architects of the now-failed voice referred to as truth-telling. Now, this might sound all well and good until you consider decolonization is also the ideology of those who support Hamas. As we've seen from the pro-Palestine protests over the past couple of weeks, these Hamas supporters see the atrocious terrorist attack in Israel as simply an act of decolonization. For example, according to commentator and Antifa expert Andy No, radical Antifa militants have been posting propaganda around campus at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, which read, nothing but hate for Israel and Zionism, nothing but love for Palestine and liberation, decolonization means attack. So how does this relate to the voice to parliament? Well, consider this. After the voice defeat, indigenous leaders who supported the voice issued a joint statement, petulantly declaring a week of silence to mourn the loss of the referendum. Now, anyone who needs to take time to mourn the loss of a democratic vote needs to grow up. However, there was one passage in the statement that certainly caught my eye. To our people, we say, do not shed tears. This rejection was never for others to issue. The truth is that rejection was always ours to determine. The truth is that we offered this recognition and it has been refused. We now know where we stand in this our own country, always was, always will be. Now that phrase, always was, all be, will, always will be, is a reference to the oft-chanted slogan, always was, always will be Aboriginal land, which frequently appears at anti-Australia Day protests to indicate Indigenous people have never ceded sovereignty. Call me crazy, but that kind of reminds me of another slogan, namely, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That slogan is, of course, off-chanted by pro-Palestinian activists, when they're not chanting, gas the Jews, that is. And, as Israeli politician Sharon Haskell pointed out last week on this program, Palestine being free means being free of Jews, the state of Israel eliminated from the river to the sea. And given the ill-disguised desire of voice architects to establish a separate First Nations law, as outlined in the extra 25 pages of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, their sentiment is not dissimilar. It's what race agitators really mean when they say, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now let me be clear, I am not in any way inferring that the voice architects want to purge Australia of non-Aboriginals in the same way Hamas wants to purge the Middle East of Jewish people, not in the slightest. But the reality is, both strains of the ideology specifically do fall under the banner of decolonization. This was explicitly outlined by a pro-Palestine activist at a rally a few days ago. 
protest. We will continue to protest hand in hand with our community. We will continue to protest and as we are receiving the support from our Aboriginal community because our cause is one cause. All First Nations people have a right to their land. This land was and will always be the land of Aboriginal people, just as the land of Palestine was and will always be the land of Palestine. Free Palestine, free to the people of Gaza, long live Palestine. So, what can we conclude from this? Well, all I'd say is, when people show you who they are, believe them. Joining me to discuss this little revelation I've had is independent video journalist and Rebel News Australia contributor, the legendary Rukshan Fernando. Rukshan, it is phenomenal to see you on this program. Are you doing well? I'm doing well, Daisy. Great to be back on your show. Fantastic. Let's get stuck in. So, Rukshan, do you think there is an eerie similarity between pro-Palestinian decolonization rhetoric like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free and always was, always will be Aboriginal land? Yeah, I mean, the similarities are very, very clear. If, if just You just got to take a moment to look at the, some of the protests mm. where these two groups sometimes protest together. And even when I've seen sometimes uh, even people within the Palestinian protest movement they will say that they're coming from Gadigal country. They will, they will make a point of uh, making those connections. So there, there is that link between those that two types of phrases that we're hearing um, around uh, this particular thing. And yeah, it, it's very obvious to see if you're looking for it, definitely. Mm, I mean, um, you actually retweeted, and I used it in my um, introduction to this segment, um, a video from an independent journalist of a Palestinian protester explicitly saying um, that the two movements were one. I mean, they couldn't be any clearer about it, could they? No, I'm, uh, it's it's very clear. And this is not just in Australia as well. We've seen this across, across the world as well, even in America when, we, when, when they're talking about decolonization. There's links between what's happening in Israel-Palestine right now, how they see themselves in terms of, you know, this is about decolonizing Israel. Uh, it's very in-your-face, clear language and always was, always will be, uh, fits into that vein as well. And, you know, it's how we confront those type of phrases and how we understand them because at, at the surface level, yes, it feels like a chant at a protest it feels like, you know, it's people being impassioned about the cause that they believe in. But fundamentally, many of the people who are saying these things strongly believe in what that actually means. Like they <laughs> want to see it through to the end. Um, and, and some of them don't even actually hide it. They're very open about it, like you said. Mm, and on that point, I mean, is what Hamas is attempting to do to Israel, which essentially their ideology is they want to purge the land of Jews and the state of Israel. Is that what you'd call an example of decolonization in the extreme? I think it's in the extreme. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not to the standards of what we might look at, for instance, having a referendum or something around this or having some sort of treaty process and, yeah. and removing people, right? This is, this is in the constitution of Hamas, as far as I understand, in, in their documents about removing Jews from uh, that that land and you know take, taking ownership of it again by completely removing them. I don't think we're that extreme in the West when we're dealing with these concepts, but it's that same mentality, right? It's that same misunderstanding sometimes, I believe, about the type of world that we're living in. Like we're living in this connected world where 
you have different people living together and we're still sometimes grappling with these concepts about colonization and decolonization. Well, if you look at history, (laughs) history is a constant uh, reminder to us that people move into lands, people come out of lands, there's a different power comes in, a different power goes out. It's constantly, uh, that's been happening for centuries or thousands of years. Today, the world is a lot more stable. And even in our stable world where people are living in peace and harmony, in some countries like Australia, I'm saying, let's forget about Israel, even in countries like Australia where we have that stability, we're still talking about things like decolonization and, and, and changing the history or changing the past. So if we're talking about that, those concepts here in Australia right now, we can only imagine what that's like in a war zone like Israel uh, in that Gaza area where they, these kind of same things are being discussed. So it's very intense. And again, uh, seeing those connections within the protest movements uh, really puts that into perspective for us here that we do have similar type of mentality uh, growing in, in the West as well. And um, it is indeed growing. And I agree with you that thankfully our you know decolonization fans aren't uh, anywhere near as extreme as Hamas, certainly not in the mainstream. But there are these radical elements on the fringes. Uh, another thing I mentioned in my intro was um, the wonderful commentator Andy No uh, posted a photo of Antifa propaganda that had been put up around the um, University of North Carolina that said, amongst other things, decolonization means attack. That's an example of that the sort of violent interpretation of decolonization, isn't it? Definitely. I feel like a lot of this rhetoric almost makes it like there's a license for people to uh, commit these type of um, uh, attacks, let's say. Uh, we're seeing right now in America, especially people walking around, pulling down posters of uh, victims from the Israeli side. And these aren't Palestinians doing this. These are just, you know, I've seen target workers doing it. I've seen just people walking past in the street being filmed doing it. Like it's kind of giving people a license by saying that this thing happened in the past, whether you agree with it or not, this bad thing happened in the past. Therefore, to right the wrongs of the past today, it's okay if you attack people. Mm. It's okay if you uh, disparage them. It's okay if you, uh, you know, separate these people in in peaceful countries in, in the West. It's okay that we behave like this because of the past. And this is what you got to understand, Daisy. A lot of these uh, conflicts have nothing to do with America or Australia. They have nothing to do with us here, but we're still bringing in that same type of mentality. And it's frightening that these, I would say, far-left extremist groups sometimes, and even these groups like Antifa, which, are, which fall into that, they're helping pushing this rhetoric because it falls into what they believe in more broadly, and it's it's really about creating chaos within society, yeah. um, and you know they're 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 more than happy to um, you know push this out there as a mainstream view if if they can. Yes, it it is certainly frightening, and as we know, there are a few sort of decolonization ideologues in the Australian Parliament, not quite to the state of Antifa, thankfully, but we know they're there. Um, Recently, not only did the Greens support an amendment of the Parliament's statement of support for Israel to assert that Israel had committed war crimes and to call for a ceasefire, the Greens were actually backed by the Sydney Teal MPs Kylie Tink and Sophie Scamps, and they faced a massive backlash, including from Jewish people in their own electorates. Rukshan, have these Teals found out what happens when, for lack of a better term, you try to play both sides? I think so. I think it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think we did have a, a teal in, in a more of a electorate in Victoria that's got more of a, a Jewish population who didn't back this. So there is a bit of politics at play here, uh, as we're seeing though with the Greens, with some of these politicians in our parliament. 
their inability to understand Australian values and Western concepts when it comes to dealing with these issues is very concerning. Mm. Uh, at, at a base level, we should be expecting our politicians to be able to disavow terrorism no matter where it happens. And this, this whole thing that they're doing where they're justifying acts of terror uh, or by saying that there's also this other bad thing that's happened, mm. we shouldn't be participating in those type of things. We should have a baseline of what we condemn. <laughs> okay? it's, a, it's another thing then later to hold another country like Israel to account if you know there's breaches of international law, there's war crimes. Yes, we do that as well in Australia. But we can't do this thing where we're playing both sides and saying, well, you know, it's, it's kind of okay in this instance because they're also, uh, you know, committing war crimes or the history of war crimes, whatever. Mm. However they phrase it. I think it's very important uh, as Australians that we should anticipate that our politicians are going to go out there and say, no, we don't accept terrorism. Because if it happened on our shores, if some people came into, you know, some town in uh, Sydney, took a whole bunch of people, hostages, murdered a whole heap of families, can you imagine if our politicians got up there and said, hey, you know, like, Perhaps it's it's justified considering what happened in the past in, in Australia because of the history. Like yeah. that, that's not cool. And I think the way that it's going the, that way, and I think the Greens, uh, as much as they're, they're being activists or whatever in, in the parliament, <laughs> the people now in Australia, if, if you pay attention, you're seeing them for what they are. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good thing, uh, mm. really. We're seeing them for what they are because in this moment, I don't, I don't believe they've risen to the occasion of actually being what true leadership is, which is condemning terrorism and then, yes, doing other uh, orders and stuff to condemn other countries, that's fine, but be able to condemn terrorism solely by itself without making excuses. Yeah, I mean, that that should absolutely be the baseline. It's not a high standard to reach for sure. Now, <laughs> Rukshan, b- before we go, I've got to get your comment on this. I mean, Anthony Albanese seems very baffled and infuriated that Australians wouldn't vote for his voice without further information. He just expected them to vote yes simply because some indigen- Indigenous leaders said they should. I thought it was the equivalent of the trust the experts rhetoric of the COVID years. Do you think that emphatic no vote reveals Australians are fine Finally, sick of that trust the experts mentality. I think so. Yeah. I think the COVID for 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 all for all the bad that we saw from it, I think a lot of people uh, became uh, more aware of uh, messaging around these things, and people really took a. I know we say that people didn't take an interest in this, but people did take an interest in this by ignoring some of the messaging messaging that was coming their way because it was a full frontal attack. Right, you had mm. John Farnham. <laughs> the voice. <laughs> He had all these celebrities. It was a full-on attack on the senses of the people. Very emotive attack as well in terms of, I'm saying these ads, to change people's hearts and minds. But I don't think that was enough anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the same as celebrities going out there on TV and saying, oh, get the jab and, you know, we'll go back to work in two weeks or whatever. It, that doesn't, didn't fly in this instance. And again, this was the inability, like you mentioned, of Albanese and other, others involved in this, uh, in the Yes23 campaign, to share details with the public. So it's good to see that Australians, without having details, are, not, are, are less willing to vote for something. It's a very good thing yes. to see. Well, I'm, I'm, I thought you'd be very pleased with that, Rukshan. I'm certainly very pleased with it. You know, given your, your coverage of COVID, you were so fantastic on that. Uh, my faith in the Australian people has really been restored from this yet, yes vote. I'm sure yours has too. And thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. This was great fun and I hope we can see you again soon. Thank you, Daisy. See you next time.
Well, that's all we have time for tonight on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.